This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're featuring two books. The first by Maha Nassar of the University of Arizona, entitled Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World, published a few years ago by Stanford University Press. Then we're going to talk to Ian Lustig of the University of Pennsylvania about his new book, Paradigm Lost. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this book segment, we're joined by Maha Nassar of the University of Arizona. We're talking about her book, Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World, uh, published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Um, it's not a new book, but it's new to me, and I really loved reading it, and so I invited Maha to join us. So, um, Maha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, tell us about the book. So the book started off, as, as many people's first books do, the book started off as a dissertation. Um, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, and I um, knew that I wanted to study something about Palestinian history. I, I was starting to think that uh, mandate history was a bit overdone. Um, so I was sort of looking around for sort of what it was that I wanted to study. And it was actually, ironically, in my Hebrew class where I was translating an essay by Anton Shamas called The Morning After. It's a famous essay that he wrote about what would happen the morning after a Palestinian state is declared, is established, and what would happen to him as a Palestinian citizen of Israel. So as I was struggling through the translation, translating it from Hebrew to English, I sort of conceptually had an aha moment that my entire life I was familiar with Palestinian history, culture, society, as a Palestinian American, as someone really interested in the region. But I knew very little, I came to realize I actually knew very little about this particular group of Palestinians who were the ones who were citizens of Israel. And so I got curious and I decided to kind of go in that direction for my dissertation. Because I was in a NELC department and I had a background in English literature, I very quickly became interested in in the literary output of these Palestinian citizens. So a lot of uh, poets that we associate as being Palestinian are are actually also in fact Palestinian citizens of Israel. People like Mahmoud Darwish, Samih al-Qasim, Tawfiq Zayad. So I wanted to focus on Palestinian citizens of Israel and their identity formation through their literary output during the 1950s and 60s. And so that's really what my dissertation was focused on. But as I was doing that dissertation research and as I was Uh, going through their literary magazines and their newspapers, I also realized that they were immensely engaged in the political, cultural, and social ups and downs of the Arab world and the larger decolonizing world of the 1950s and 60s. And so as I went back to revise my dissertation as a book, I reworked it quite substantially to really focus on not so much the literary output, although that's certainly a part of it, but to become more focused on how was it that Palestinian citizens of Israel who between 1940 and 1966 were living under Israeli military law, were very restricted in their movements, they couldn't travel to the Arab world, people from the Arab world couldn't travel into Israel. So how was it given this geographic and political isolation, how were they able to stay so in touch with, attuned to, engaged with, the political, social, and cultural developments of the Arab world. And what I found 
sort of bringing those two strands together is that it was the literary and journalistic outputs that connected them when they couldn't physically connect with other Arabs. It was really interesting the way uh, the, the book begins where you, you don't really think about this in this kind of globalized era, but just the absolute difficulty that they had even getting access to uh, the text, to the poems, to the, the you know, the, the literary journals and the like. Uh, it really drove home that level of isolation that they felt. It did, yeah. The idea that Palestinians had to very surreptitiously, I found when I was interviewing Palestinian poets and intellectuals, they talked about how deliberate and how careful, frankly, they had to be when they would uh, copy poetry diwans, poetry collections, and then they would share it with their friends. And they did it kind of on the download because, but here's the thing that I, I found particularly ironic, but fascinating at the same time. It wasn't that Arabic publications or publications from the Arab world were inherently illegal. The Hebrew University Library had a very robust Oriental Studies department. They were importing newspapers and journals from the Arab world. They were bringing Al-Adab and Al-Adib and others into the library of the Hebrew University. But it was when those, those Arabic publications were in the hands of Palestinian intellectuals in Israel, that's when they started to be seen as dangerous. And there's an interesting thing, it's later in the book, but you talk about uh, when uh, the Iraqi Jews fled um, and they brought back with them many of these poems and things and just the hunger that you described that people had to consume these and to learn what the vanguard was out there in the Arab world. Yeah, it's a connection that I hadn't initially made, but as I did more research, uh, I became really fascinated by it. So among, so as probably many of your listeners know, there was a huge wave of Iraqi Jewish refugees who left or were driven out of Iraq in the early 1950s, many of whom came to Israel and then settled there. But for a lot of those Iraqi Jews, Arabic was their first language. Uh, they weren't necessarily tied to Zionism. Many of them were active on the communist left and other kind of leftist formations in Iraq. And many of them were at the forefront of a larger Iraqi and Arab uh, poetic movement, which was the free verse movement. And so you had Iraqi intellectuals who were themselves steeped in Arab cultural production, people like Sasson Somech and others, who, when they came over, they brought Arabic poetry collections with them, uh, collections of uh, Nazik al-Malaika, Badr Shaq al-Sayyab, and others. And for the Palestinians in Israel who were isolated from the rest of the Arab world, this became a kind of uh, lifeline for many of them, a way to connect to that free verse movement. And it was how many of those poets, like Darwish and others, uh, honed their skills in poetry as well. Now let's take a step back and let's talk about poetry. Um, and specifically, you know, tell us about how uh, po poetry and poems and the like, how they fit into this emergent political public sphere. Why is poetry so important? That's a great question. So we know that poetry, Arabic poetry, and especially oral poetry, had been has an, and had been playing a strong role in Arabic cultural society. Uh, across the Arab world. There was in the 1940s and uh, 30s and 40s, the rise of what becomes known as platform poetry, 
which is poetry that is often said in demonstrations and in protests that is, has a direct message, a direct political or social message, can be easily understood and, and, and memorized and repeated and recited, and was a way to connect people and mobilize people around central causes that didn't have to be subjected to a um, censor for, of a newspaper, for example. And that was something else that we also see in Iraq uh, during the Wathba, for example, in the late exactly. 40s, we have the role of uh, platform poetry being a major factor. So we, there's a larger context for this. Specifically for Palestinian citizens of Israel, this kind of platform poetry, this kind of poetry that's recited in public spaces plays an additional important role in a couple of ways. One is that early on in the 50s and 60s, Many, uh, in fact, most of the Palestinians who remain in Israel and who ultimately, sooner or later, if at all, get Israeli citizenship, many of them were from rural populations, literacy rates were low, uh, although they you know, inc increased over time. And so the oral poetry tradition was a way to bring them in to a public sphere and a public dialogue that written material may not necessarily reach them in the same way. So that's number one. Number two, poetry festivals, which became, which I, I first started coming across when I was doing my dissertation research, played a really important political role. Why is that? Well, it's because again, Palestinians in the 50s and 60s were under Israeli military law. That means they were severely restricted in terms of their ability to gather for political protests or any kind of political gathering. Poetry festivals were seen as, at least initially, by the Israeli authorities as a bit milder, less political. And so Palestinian activists were able to utilize that space to turn poetry festivals into political mobilization events. Uh, Israeli officials got wind of that by the late 50s, early 60s and started to clamp down, but they continued to play an important role. And then the third thing that they did, these poetry festivals, is that they introduced a younger generation of Palestinian activists to the power of poetry. So and when I say younger, I'm talking about the generation of Darwish and Mihil Qasim in particular, who are introduced to those poetry festivals as children um, or as, as teenagers. And they look around and say, wow, poetry actually can play an important kind of social role. Uh, and so they, they're socialized to think of poetry in that way, which then uh, sort of manifests further as we move on. So why don't we like talk a little bit about how this uh, progresses uh, over time uh, through the chapters of your book. Um, and so in, uh, it, it's, again, maybe not a surprise, but it's worth talking a little bit about the uh, centrality of the left and the Communist Party in terms of how Palestinian citizens of Israel kind of began to tentatively engage with politics. So tell us a little bit about that and the personalities involved. Sure. So the left has been in Palestine for, had been in Palestine even as far back as the mandate period. The earliest iterations of the Communist Party were predominantly Jewish. The, um, the Soviet Union then pushed the uh, Palestine Communist Party at that time to Arabize, to draw in more Arab Palestinians. And so we start to see that emerging in the 1930s. By the 40s, especially during and after World War II, there's a little bit more space for leftist organizations and intellectual spaces to emerge 
having to do with uh, British-Soviet rapprochement and other factors. When the State of Israel is founded in 1948, they're very keen to eliminate and, uh, and sort of quash any expressions of Arab nationalist or Palestinian nationalist identity, viewing them as a threat to, uh, to Zionism and the Zionist underpinnings of the state. But they were not as keen to quash uh, communist mobilizations for a couple of reasons. One is that the Soviet Union had recognized Israel and Israel wanted at that point at least, and here I'm talking early mid fifties, in the early to mid 1950s, Israel want, still wanted to stay in the Soviet Union's good graces. So they didn't want to shut the Communist Party down. Number two, the, the Communist Party was built on the idea of Arab Jewish worker cooperation and solidarity. And so even though it was technically non-Zionist, it wasn't anti-Zionist the way Arab nationalist parties might be. And then the third thing is that the communist leadership in Israel early on um, accommodated some of the core elements of the Israeli Zionist narrative, such that they were allowed a little bit more political space. So what that means is that for Palestinian citizens of Israel who are politically engaged, who are critical of the state, in the 1950s, the Communist Party is the only game in town. Uh, in the late 1950s, there emerges the Arab movement, which is an Arab nationalist party that briefly comes on the scene, but it too is, again, quashed by, by the Israeli authorities. So some of the, I would say the more stalwart generation, the, the veteran generation who became communist members during the mandate period, people like Emil Habibi and Emil Tuma, they joined the Communist Party, I think, out of genuine kind of strong communist convictions. But then there were others like Darwish and later on Sinhir Qasim who joined the Communist Party, again, because it was the only game in town. And so as we move into the 1960s, we're going to see ideological tensions between those older, more stalwart communists and then the younger communists who are technically in the Communist Party, but have more sympathy to Arab nationalist ideas. Now, maybe take a step back. Like, I'm, I'm so interested in how this public sphere develops and everything. Another big part of it is the newspapers and the publications that are being that are being put out there. And, and just related to what you're talking about, you see like the promotion of some newspapers that are trying to promote a kind of an integration type of narrative and others that are exploring these interesting ideas about a more colonial or, or anti-colonial context. So maybe we can let, let's flesh out this picture of the public sphere where all this is happening. Sure. So there are three main newspapers, Arabic language newspapers, and that's what I focused on in the book. Yeah. So there are three main Arabic language newspapers that are being published inside Israel from 1948 through, through the time period that I study, which is through the end of the 60s. The first is Al-Yom, which is the um, government newspaper, and that is being edited by uh, Mikhail Asaf, who is a, a Polish-Israeli Orientalist, essentially. He studied Arabic in, in, in Europe. And, and um, so they're basically towing the government line and trying to convince the Palestinian and early on as well, um, Arabic Jewish speaking audiences, Mizrahi Jewish audiences, trying to convince all of them that the state of Israel is a force for good in their lives. So there were lots of articles about how the government paved these roads and connected this water and electricity and so forth. 
Um, and it was, but it was also briefly in the early 50s, a space where Palestinians could write in. There was a, they called it a free platform section where they could write in with their criticisms of the state, with their complaints. But a staff always insisted on having the last word. So it was really a government mouthpiece and it was read as such. So that's number one. The second newspaper was Al-Mirsad, which was published by the Mapam Party. So the Mapam Party is a leftist Zionist, kind of socialist Zionist party in Israel. Kind of similar, we might think of it as being a little bit similar to today's Meretz Party. So kind of leftist, but still Zionist at the end of the day. Um, and they preached a also uh, that more integrationist message that I talked about. That was, but that was still under uh, uh, Israeli auspices. But they, so they talked about the, the sort of attitude was we can change things for the better from within the system. And the third newspaper was Al Ittihad, which was the communist uh, paper, the the Arabic newspaper of the Israeli Communist Party. That was the one that was most vocal and the most explicit in terms of its anti-colonial outlook. And then very briefly, there was the paper of the Ard movement. Um, but as I said, that got shut down fairly, fairly quickly. That one had an unabashed, Nasserist, pan-Arab, Palestinian nationalist um, outlook. Now, that Nasserist moment is really interesting in terms of what it does with Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel then. And you've got that conjunction uh, and really ni very nicely recapture the radicalism of that moment with Algeria and the revolution in Iraq and the UAR. And um, so how, is, how does that then be received by these Palestinian citizens and, and the Israeli government? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that period? Sure. So this is the, the sort of post-58 moment or sort right. of a moment of, of radicalization and radical hope that emerges in 1958 with, as you mentioned, the formation of the UAR, events in Iraq and Lebanon, and it kind of continues and crests through 59 and then starts to get uh, cracked down upon in the, as we move into 60 and 61. Uh, it was widely, it was really well received. So the Ard papers, they uh, took, so the Ard movement, as I said, was a Nasserist pan-Arab movement. The founders of it were critical of the communist party for not going far enough in its criticism and critique of Israel as a, as a colonial power and as an oppressive regime. They had a lot of debate back and forth about how far they could push the envelope, so to speak. Right. They were very careful, but they did sort of take it to the line and uh, for Israelis ended up crossing the line. Uh, but that line was really well received. So the, in terms of circulation, the newspapers that I mentioned, those three newspapers averaged several hundred to maybe 14 or 1500 uh, issues in circulation. Uh, a subscription, like not just subscription, but also people buying. Now that's not the total readership, of course, because people pass newspapers around, people read them out loud, but the circulation numbers, and I was uh, basing them a lot on Joel Bynan's work, mm -hmm. who also looked at this very carefully, you know, 700, 1400, things like that. The odds, uh, uh, their paper, it wasn't a newspaper. What they did was they took advantage of a loophole in the Israeli publishing law that allowed groups to publish a single issue without needing a permit and without needing it to go through a government censor. So they published a series of single issue papers all using the word al-ard. So echo of the land, so ard means land. So echo of the land, uh, rain cloud of the land, 
son of the land and so forth. So they were single issue, but it was part of a series and they ran about uh, 12 of them and they were getting circulations of like 8,000. They, they couldn't keep up with the demand. So there was a really strong thirst um, that I, I discern from those numbers. And then also from, I talked to one of the editors, uh, the late Fozil Asmar, who also talked about how the, the level of excitement and the level of um, energy around what they were reading was also very palpable, um, which, is, which is why I got shut down. Yeah. And, and so this, and let's talk a little bit about that then. I mean, so these poets, whether it's in their poetry or in their columns and commentary, I mean, what are they saying at this time as they're kind of moving into this pan-Arab or anti-colonial phase? So it kind of depends on uh, their political orientation. So Rashid Hussein, for example, who was not communist and was critical of the Communist Party, he published essays in Mapam's paper, Al Masag, and then was accused of sort of normalizing with Zionists uh, by the communists. But Rashid Hussein had more of that pan-Arab orientation, but within the confines of the state, so to speak. Mahmoud Darwish, um, in his early poetry, of the early 1960s. And he was also writing essays, by the way. He wasn't just a poet, right. he was also an essayist at this time. Was more in, I would say, a, a communist outlook, but he was always really fascinated by Algeria and by the role that language plays in either the liberation of a people or in the erasure of that people's identity. So the, uh, French language policies in Algeria were really fascinating to him. He wrote a lot about it and the ways in which France, France tried to uh, shore Algerians of their connection to their language, to their heritage. And while he didn't say it explicitly, usually in his columns and in his interviews and so forth, um, he did imply a, a direct connection or uh, maybe a parallel is a better word, mm -hmm. between Israel's policies of trying to denude Palestinians of their Palestinian Arab identity and what he saw as happening in Algeria. And the flip of that, the flip side of that was how Algerians resisted right. through Arabic language, but also sometimes through French language literature as well. So Derwish is, is fascinating and complex and also changes over time. So in the early mid 1960s, he's more of a, I would say a communist anti-imperialist. So he's talking in broad strokes around anti-imperialism, uh, French colonialism and so forth, but not really, none of these writers, by the way, are really explicitly saying what we hear today, you know, Israel is a settler colonial power. They're not doing that, whether it's because of censorship and political repression, whether it's because that's not quite how they saw things, I don't know, frankly. Um, but I do think it's important that we not be presentist in our analysis right. and kind of assume that they uh, are as explicit as sort of Palestinians are today. Let's let's fast forward then. Uh, 67, occupation of the West Bank, and this starts actually breaking down some of the barriers between these Palestinian citizens of Israel and the rest of the Arab world. So let's talk about that period now. Sure. So up until 1967, uh, most people in the Arab world, frankly, believed, bought into 
the Israeli PR that Arab Israelis, as they called them, that Arab Israelis were a content minority living in a democratic state of Israel. A lot of Arabs saw those, the, the Palestinian citizens of Israel as sellouts, as people who had accommodated themselves to the Israeli regime, or at, you know, that's at worst, and maybe at best that they were passive victims of Israeli repression. That picture starts to change actually in the mid 1960s with a number of Palestinian intellectuals who are in exile, who understood the Palestinian con condition and understood that Palestinians don't always get to choose the uh, citizenship that they have. So people at Ghassan Kanafani, there's another uh, historian named Ahmed Sidhi Dejani, start talking in the Arab world about the fact that there are these Palestinians who are in Israel, but we still need to consider them to be Palestinian. Kanafani was especially important because he's the first to bring some of the poetry of Darwish and Qasim and Tawfiq Zayad and others to an Arabic audience. He publishes a cover story in um, Al Adab, which is a widely circulating um, Beirut based literary journal. So it gets some attention in 1966, but as you said, it's not until after the 67 war when people really start paying attention, in part because there's this big shock in the Arab world. Oh my God, we've been defeated by Israel and so quickly. Uh, there's an opening now of the, of the physical barriers between Palestinians and Israel and those in the occupied territories, and then by extension, the Arab world. And so people start asking and looking and they say, wow, these Palestinians who've been under Israeli rule for 19 years now, they still identify with us. They still have a strong sense of national identity and connection. Uh, let's, you know, let's take a look at them. So there, the pendulum to some extent swung in the opposite direction where they were lionized and, and really kind of held up on a pedestal, especially in 69, 68, 69, 70 during the height of the Palestinian revolution. Um, and so that's that moment. So it's a combination of uh, their own sense of self-defeat and kind of looking for new heroes. And so these Palestinians, especially the resistance poets, emerge in that role. Well, I mean, this is obviously not in the book. Uh, the book was, you know, written, five, published five years ago. Um, but here we are today, and we were talking last week about you know, this re-emergence of, of uh, identification between Palestinians in, inside of Israel and in the occupied territories. And, uh, you know, do you see any, what, what are the connections that you see, if any, between this earlier history and uh, what you're seeing today? So I see a lot of connections. Uh, I think the first one to mention is that what we, one of the things that came through in the last couple of weeks with the Palestinian protests, particularly in the so-called mixed cities of Lid and Haifa and Yaffa, is that Palestinian citizens of Israel remain Palestinian and remain committed to the Arab uh, and Palestinian cause. In fact, it was Palestinian activists in Haifa who launched the call for the Palestinian general strike that was uh, launched on May 18th. So they're very active in the sort of broader Palestinian public sphere is one connection. Another connection is that like their predecessors of the 1960s, they were largely written off in much of the Arab discourse and even some of the Palestinian discourse around uh, what it means to be Palestinian or on the Palestinian national movement. 
And so the last couple of weeks have been that kind of post 67 moment where people are like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? These, they're, they're actually quite, they're much more active than we've given them credit for. They are the vanguard in many ways of what it means to lead the Palestinian struggle. And then uh, a third connection that I see is maybe a, a bit of a continuation, but also a bit of difference. One of the things that also struck me as I was listening to and watching and reading some, a lot of these younger Palestinian activists who are in, inside, as they would say, inside 48, because many of these younger activists don't identify themselves as Palestinian citizens of Israel. They say we are 48 Palestinians, we're Palestinians inside, we're Palestinians in, in 48, uh, occupied 48 land. They too were talking about colonialism. They too were talking about being colonized, but in a much, much, much more explicit and direct way than the people I studied in my book. So they talk about how we are, we are facing a settler colonial regime and an Israeli settler colonial regime that we need to dismantle along with our brother, you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Palestine. So it's a uh, continuation, I would say, or, or a uh, progression of some of the anti-colonial and decolonizing discourses that I write about in my book, but they're doing so in a much, much more explicit way. Well, great, thanks. We've been speaking to Maha Nassar, University of Arizona, about her book, Brothers Apart. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is the Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Ian Lustig of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of the new book, Paradigm Lost, From Two-State Solution to One-State Reality. Ian, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here, Mark. Thanks. So tell us about this book and uh, what you're trying to accomplish with it. Well, I think we can think about a term that most people come to their mind when they think about this problem, and that is occupation. And the book is trying to look at the occupation in a very different way. So occupations are two things, really. They're conditions of coercive control, and they are temporary. Now, Israel's occupation of the West Bank in Gaza 54 years ago is still a relationship of coercive control, but it is no longer temporary. It's permanent, or as permanent as circumstances can be in politics. This is not the result of the settlements per se, but because of the transformation of Israel into a society and state that, explain, that is what explains the success of the settlement project. So what is the future of an occupation that's not temporary? How does it end? Well, it can end through regime change. It can end the way the American North's occupation of the South after the Civil War ended the way Israel's occupation of the Central Galilee in 1948 ended by completely absorbing the territories and their populations into the core states so that the rules that apply to and govern populations in those territories are no different from the rules that apply and govern populations anywhere else in the state. In other words, since the state of Israel now includes Judea, Samaria, the Jordan Valley and the Gaza Strip, Occupation will end with a change in the regime that enforces and promulgates laws in that state so that all those living within it enjoy what actually President Biden just described in his statement welcoming the ceasefire 
in what was, I would say, the first civil war of the one state reality, what did Biden say? He said, the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, and democracy. Now, as I point out in my book, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a way to achieve two states for two peoples was available for attaining those objectives. I fought for decades to see for the possibility that that could be achieved. For years, however, that route to a better uh, life for Israelis and Palestinians has not been available. When so many really prefer systematic discrimination and domination to democracy, because there are many people who do prefer systematic uh, discrimination to democracy, continuing to try to bring about two states when that can't be done automatically means the entrenchment of oppression and its concealment of apartheid beneath a veil of mostly disingenuous blabber about negotiations. That's why I, but it's very difficult to shift one's intellectual and political and emotional gears to see what the reality really is. To the, that the real way forward then is a gestalt shift, what I call a paradigm shift in the way we think so that we can appreciate that the way toward the complete end of the occupation is not territorial withdrawal, which can't be achieved anymore. And to struggle for it just preserves a limbo of unchallengeable uh, oppression. The real way forward is directly to struggle for the values that we hold that led us to like the two-state solution to begin with. That is, we favor, progressives do, equality, democracy, and opportunities for mutual non-exclusivist national self-expression. We have to struggle for those within the one state that already really exists, not as a solution, but as a reality. It's not a small, cozy Jewish democracy. There never will be, if there ever was, such a small, cozy Jewish democracy. It's a one-state reality, not a solution, not a pretty picture. And what I discuss in my book about the one-state reality is how the problems that we have within it can become, if not a solution, then a set of better problems. So basically asking fundamentally different questions. Uh, let's, let's talk about this one state reality and what that actually means to talk about a one state reality, because, you know, most people, at least up until quite recently, didn't really think about it that way. As you said, they talked about occupation and uh, the possibility of a Palestinian state. And you're looking at, uh, you know, kind of the way Palestinians are actually governed and who actually controls and regulates their lives. So tell us a little bit about how you think about this one state reality and what it means in practice. Well, uh, most of our listeners are familiar with the United States, with American politics, with American history. They know that blacks in the South during Jim Crow, even blacks in the North during Jim Crow, the early 20th century, to say nothing about African-Americans when they were enslaved people, the people can live within the same state and be governed by very different rules, even citizens. Some can be non-citizens. We have tens of millions of, of not undocumented. They all live within the same state according to different rules. It's not such an unusual thing for a state to enforce different rules 
with different means of coercion or law, even different laws in different zones over different populations. So just because Jews in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria live with, under the protection of Israeli laws uh, that uh, Israelis who live in Tel Aviv live under, and the Arabs who are their neighbors in the West Bank do not, they live under different laws, does not mean that they are not within the same state. They, the question of who's in what state resolves to two questions. Number one, what, what states exist east of the Jordan River? If a state is an organization that enforces property rights, that can say whether your house or your life is secure or not, then the, there's only one state that exists between the river and the sea, and that's the state of Israel. Doesn't matter if you live in Gaza, in a prison inside of Israel, in the West Bank, or in Ramat Sharon, whether or not you will enjoy the rights to your property are determined by decisions made as a function of the Israeli political system via the Israeli government, i.e. by the Israeli state. So to think about a one-state reality means thinking about all the people whose life chances are determined overwhelmingly by a single state, and that is the state we call the state of Israel. And you That's the reality. And, and, and to go back to something you said before, you don't see it then. It's not the settlements that have caused this. That's not the fundamental issue. Right. The settlements, uh, I've opposed settlements in the West Bank and Gaza for 50 years because I believed that the more settlements there were, the harder it would be to achieve a negotiated separation, a two-state solution, and at some point it would become impossible. But what was the real problem is not the settlements per se, but that they couldn't be stopped. They couldn't be stopped, their expansion couldn't be stopped because Israel itself transformed. Israel was what we might call in American parlance, a blue state. Connecticut or New Jersey. It then became a purple state in the 80s or 70s. It became Ohio. Or it is now Oklahoma. It is a deeply red state. It is Idaho. It is Nebraska. Under those conditions, it is not surprising that a ferociously anti-Palestinian, irredentist, maximalist version of Zionism that's the, that expressed through the settlements uh, was achieved. And my book goes into the psychological and political uh, uh, foundations for why Israel transformed in this way. But it is what we have now. There is no one, even those who talk the most uh, uh, passionately in favor of continuing a search for a two-state solution, they no longer can describe a political path to produce a government in Israel that would actually uh, do that, or a change in Israel's international uh, situation that would lead to a government doing that. So what we find, and I show this in my book, that if you analyze this, the, especially the private or the scholarly closed conversations of those in Israel who tend to talk about a two-state solution, they really don't hold out the promise of two states. What they say is, 
no, we can't get the two-state solution, but we cannot give up the image that it's available. Because if we give up that image, then we'll be forced to fight over whether Israel is a democracy or not. We don't want to do that because that'll lead to either apartheid officially or uh, having to share power with Arabs in this country, which we're unwilling to do. So I call those folks, and that includes, unfortunately, a very large chunk of the Israeli political spectrum from Yair Lapid to Benny Gantz to, to even uh, uh, people like Yossi Alfer, silent apartheidists, because we have this kind of systematic discrimination in place in this one state reality that fits the legal definition of apartheid. It's a different in some ways from South African, but that, that doesn't matter. But by not admitting that that's the case, it can't be challenged as such. It can't be used as a fulcrum for mobilization. And it, it therefore drains focus, it drains attention, it drains understanding, and it drains mobilizational energy from things that could actually improve the life chances of all the people living between the river and the sea. Also, building off of that, the title of the book is Paradigm Lost. And you, and you talk here and, and elsewhere in, in, in your work um, about how these paradigms survive in the face of, you know, kind of the, the, they're no longer seem to be describing reality as it is, but they don't change for a very long time. Um, so talk us through that process a little bit and uh, at the level of ideas and uh, why you see this paradigm as, as having been so resilient. Okay, well, to me, this is, from an intellectual point of view, the most interesting part of the book, because it allowed me to draw on my uh, knowledge of social science methodology and social science philosophy about how ideas, even in science, change. That fundamentally, the, uh, the assumptions that undergird political thinking and the assumptions that undergird scientific or, or analytic thinking function in the same way. Deep, deep assumptions are necessary for communities to hold, even though those communities know that in the long run, even those assumptions will change. People operated for hundreds of years as if Newton's description of the universe was correct. Well, it's not correct, but very valuable work was done within the context of Newtonian physics before uh, relativity came along. And the same thing can even be said about, about Ptolemaic astronomy that held that the earth was at the center of the universe. Enormous amounts of accurate calculations and forecasts and predictions uh, and charting the heavens could be done that way before it was understood after Copernicus and Galileo that actually it was completely, the assumptions were incorrect. It took centuries for people to give up these assumptions. Well, in politics, projects, those are scientific projects, but political projects also need to be undergirded by assumptions that people don't challenge so that they can do the normal work of science, the normal work of politics, convincing, building, organizing, and so on. But when the world changes, or when discoveries are made that show that the world is radically different from the assumptions of the uh, paradigm, it takes it, the advocates generations often to adjust. In fact, uh, Max Planck, the famous German science, uh, physicist, uh, said, yes, it's true, physics advances. It advances funeral by funeral, 
by which he meant that even the best, the leading scientists often have a tremendously difficult, if not impossible time, adjusting to new scientific truths. The same is true in politics. Uh, my friend Saab Erekat, who was the foreign minister of the, of the PLO and the Palestinian Authority for years, its lead negotiations, an old friend of mine from the old days when we used to drive around the West Bank and talk about a future two-state solution, he acknowledged late in his life that there was no path to a two-state solution any longer. On the other hand, he could not give it up. He, he, he realized that politically, psychologically, in terms of his role in the world, that's not something that he was going to give up. Uh, it's very difficult, even for me, it was difficult to give up the idea that in my lifetime, some kind of solution, some kind of pretty picture of relations between the two peoples would be achieved. But I had to give that up in order to be able to think in a non-boring way about a topic that I'd always been able to think creatively about. But if you're stuck in a two-state solution paradigm where you're constantly worried about whether another settlement is going to be set up, which is irrelevant now because it doesn't matter how many new settlements are set up, uh, whether you're worried about whether the next American administration will finally launch a meaningful set of negotiations, no, they won't. And they'll either they'll actually serve much different purposes. It's those are the questions you don't want to in Yiddish fedray your cup about anymore. It's a waste of time to bother your mind about it. And if I could just give one really graphic example of what happens when you switch paradigms. For progressives in Israel for 40 years, the most the strongest argument they thought they had for getting Israelis to accept withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza was the demographic argument. We have to get out of these territories because you don't want to live with untrustworthy, uh, difficult to live with, uh, uh, scary Arabs. That was the demographic argument. We can't have a Jewish state without, with all these Arabs. We can't live peacefully. We can't live in a satisfying way without Arabs. That demographic argument never succeeded in scaring enough uh, uh, Israelis who already weren't committed to two states into accepting it. But it does convince Israelis that Arabs are people who can't be partners. Now that there's a one state reality, progressives can no longer say, well, I am uncomfortable making this argument, but I have to make it in order to build a winning coalition because now the only winning coalition that's available to progressives is one that includes Arabs, includes Arab voters, includes Arab parties, includes future Arab voters in East Jerusalem and even in the West Bank and Gaza. So to use the demographic argument now under the one state reality is the worst possible tactic that progressives can use as opposed to the only one that would have a hope of success. So. What you see there with this gestalt shift is how even very, uh, what had been obviously attractive positions for progressives are completely the opposite. That you're carrying water for the right when you make a demographic argument that deprives you of the only source of potential political power you have, which is an alliance with Arab voters. It's as if in the United States, Democrats were still saying what Democrats said in the late 19th and early 20th century, which is that blacks have no constitutional right to help rule the country. If, black, if the Democratic Party 
took racist positions now, it could never win elections. It can only win elections the way George George Wallace won his fourth term as governor of Alabama, and that is by abandoning segregationism and kissing black babies. So these are, this seem to me to be two different types of arguments though. I mean, qualitatively. Uh, on the one hand, you've, you have the psychological argument that people are so deeply invested in this paradigm, in, in the two states for two peoples argument. Um, that's one. And then the other is an intentional one, kind of a political strategic one. It would be bad. For, we wouldn't be able to win elections. Um, we wouldn't be able to do some other thing that we want to do. So we stick to the two state solution uh, kind of consciously and intentionally and strategically. And which of those do you think is really going on here? Is it a psychological or is it a political calculation? Well, I, I, I don't see them as contradictory. The, the, the fact is that analytic uh, propositions and assumptions play an emotional role or they, that is, and emotions do the work of putting, of making those uh, assumptions about the world, protecting them from being questioned. Mm-hmm. It's the emotional hegemony. It helps create the hegemony of those ideas. So what scholars and what uh, counter hegemonic thinking is, is being able to remember that despite your emotional connection, there is an analytic content that can be assessed for its truth value. Because usually what that emotional content does is it privileges the belief and makes it immune from being questioned. So what we have here is is a struggle uh, in which how much evidence do you need, uh, how much evidence seen in what ways can help you deal, work through the emotional attachments and see that they are displaced in the sense that Mm -hmm. what people have been attracted to about the two-state solution is partly something that they may not want to own up to, that is their desire to be separate from Arabs, and partly due to an image of a cozy, warm Jewish state that no longer is achievable, if it ever was. Uh, And once they see that their deeper values for equality, democracy, living in peace with neighbors who are different but not necessarily hostile, that those values can be achieved in other political frameworks. Because after all, a two-state solution is just an institutional framework. There are many other institutional frameworks that could portray pretty pictures of the future. There are many ways to achieve a one-state reality. The fact that we have a multiracial democracy in the United States is not because Abraham Lincoln or anybody else in the first uh, 25 to 30% of the American history imagined that there would be or should be a multinational democracy. Lincoln wanted the blacks to go back to Africa. He was mainly opposed to slavery when he talked about it because he didn't like the miscegenation. So, uh, but as a result of the unintended consequences of a huge unwanted population being in part of a dynamic democracy, we ended up after 150 years of struggle that no one guided into a multiracial democracy flawed as it is. That is the way history actually changes, not through blueprints that are nicely implemented through negotiations between men and women, for example, over should women get rights, but through struggles of projects that partially succeed or entirely fail and create conditions 
and circumstances that lead to social and political realignments that no one imagined. And that's why the, my book has two epigrams at the beginning. One is a quote from a Leonard Cohen poem, uh, uh, sounded like the truth, but it's not the truth today, I'm not giving you the whole quote. And the other one is a Yiddish proverb my grandfather always said, which was, Man tracht und God lacht. Man plans and God laughs. So much of the book is about how what we have today is the result of unintended consequences and their interaction. And that's the way we need to think about how the future can be achieved as well. It, it seems like, uh, you know, we're in a moment right now where some of these unscrutinized assumptions do seem to be coming up into public debate and public discourse and kind of normalized in ways they weren't before. So obviously Palestinians have been talking about a one state reality for quite some time. And uh, you've seen a real move away from two state thinking among Palestinian intellectuals. Um, but just with this latest war and with the Human Rights Watch report uh, on apartheid, and uh, progressive politicians uh, in Congress, you know, coming out and kind of using this language openly. It seems like this is no longer a moment where you have an unscrutinized set of assumptions. And I wonder in your way of thinking about how ideas change or how paradigms change, how significant is this? This is very significant. It's, it's part of what I wrote the book in order to help encourage. And it's true if we look at the way people think about the Israel lobby, there are questions being asked about it that weren't asked before. Uh, and I would stress that this is not just uh, within the pro-Israel community or within, the is within Israel. As you suggest in your question, this is also going on on the Palestinian side. There are some very difficult struggles in which for decades, the two-state solution and the, and the leadership of the uh, PLO and, the, its, in, and its successors, the Palestinian Authority, even though those groups were not progressive, did not respond to the emotional and analytic intellectual positions of much of the Palestinian diaspora, didn't respond very well to the aspirations of Palestinian refugees outside of Palestine. Despite all that, there was a commitment to support the Oslo process and so on. Now you see a really robust struggle among Palestinians who are trying to come to grips with the fact that the groups and programs they've been sacrificing for for decades to try to get some small but independent Palestinians say in the West Bank by supporting a more or less corrupt and inept uh, Palestinian authority and even a Hamas regime, and that it's impossible to uh, succeed that way. Shifting power to uh, uh, actors, grassroots organizers, NGOs, Palestinians in the diaspora, uh, new generations of Palestinian intellectuals in the West Bank and Gaza and inside of Israel itself who see the problem much more broadly. That's a tremendous struggle. And it's, and it's so psychological and political. And one specific part of it that has not gotten enough attention is the question of anti-normalization. One of the things that has gone on in the West Bank in Gaza and increasingly in the diaspora over the last 10 or 20 years is to separate from, even from uh, Jewish or Israeli dissidents and, and uh, to interpret contacts among them as, uh, nor, as supporting the occupation, as normalizing it. That was a position that was different from the 
position that Palestinian activists took in the 1980s and early 90s when they collaborated with the liberal Zionists and others in trying to achieve a two-state solution. I now think that under the one-state reality, whose implications have not been completely understood by Palestinians either, that that anti-normalization position is no longer working, that it's necessary to see what is happening, what the opportunities are in the whole country in different ways for different populations to work with one another because their interests uh, are ultimately are in democratic uh, organizations, not in organizations that try to lead down tunnels to nowhere toward a supposed two-state solution. So we, there's a lot of room for research thinking, yeah. robust discussion that I'm trying to open up and encourage on both sides of the divide. So one last question, um, which is, you know, kind of moving, you know, broadening the aperture beyond uh, this book in this moment. Uh, so my favorite of your books, um, I mean, I'm sure I love all your books equally, but my favorite of them was uh, Unset Unsettled States, Disputed Lands, where you compared the Israeli-Palestinian uh, situation with uh, Algeria and the French and, uh, and Northern Ireland and the UK, and, you know, kind of looked at how things change? How do you see these kind of massive, um, you know, battles over selfhood, over nationhood, over statehood? Um, why do some reverse and why do some not? And so I'm curious, you know, where you think we are now in these kind of hegemonic struggles. Um, and, you know, how did we, you know, you wrote that book, you know, 20 years ago, or maybe longer. Um, and, you know, looking back and where we are today, you know, what's surprising or what's new? Well, what I think, uh, I'm very proud of that book, and it led me to make predictions in the early 90s that, there, that, the, that whether there would be a, a two-state solution would be driven by secret negotiations between Israel and the PLO, which turned out to, be, uh, to occur, just as I said they would. But I also warned that if it wasn't implemented quickly, that assassinations of... Uh, of Israeli leaders by uh, settlers would be a direct threat to their uh, consummation and that they wouldn't have very much time. So what has happened that I didn't anticipate in the book is that this, uh, that you could have the reality of one state, but that the right would not uh, uh, emphasize the need to officially recognize it as permanent because there was so much the right could get out of pretending it wasn't permanent, of treating the situation as if it hasn't been completely resolved, thereby constantly uh, uh, justifying a state of emergency, a state of exception, a state where we have to constantly increase settlements, a state where we have to oppress Palestinians because we're, uh, it's still unoccupied or it's still uh, an unsettled, open to negotiations. That that uh, position was something that was not recognized in the book. However, what was recognized in the book is something which I think it bears, uh, I'd like to conclude with if this is the last question. And that is what happened with Ireland. You know, I'm I talk so far today with you about the United States and the unintended, unanticipated ways that democracy unfolded in the United States. 
over a long period of time, not, not five years, not 10 years, but decades and generations. And that's the appropriate time frame. But once you go out in that geologic time, you can no longer blueprint your way toward a, a definite outcome. So take the annexation of Ireland. And Ireland was annexed by Britain in 1800, hundreds of years after it was occupied. But for 70 years, the Irish Catholics who were in Ireland, the majority, were not really granted equal rights in the, uh, in the British political system. Even the bourgeoisie was not allowed equal political rights if they were Catholic until the 1840s. It took until the 1880s, really, when the Irish Catholics were able to organize effectively within British politics several generations to start having a real impact. The Home Rule Bill, the struggle for autonomy, uh, that transformed British politics, an alliance between the Irish and the liberals, almost succeeded before World War I in achieving some kind of a integration of Ireland into the United Kingdom based on a limited autonomy, but it failed. Then you had World War I, you had a kind of intifada civil war, and by 1921, what did you end up with? You ended up with a separate Irish state that seceded. So 120 years after annexation, after complete legal integration, then you get a two-state solution. Although it's, it's still not a complete solution. It's not a complete stability. People are still fighting and arguing over the, the status of Northern Ireland. So if we project, use that kind of thinking, we can say that the future is open-ended, but it is it's very much more likely that if there ever will be a two-state solution, that the one-state reality will first produce a one-state solution of complete integration empowering all the people between the river and in the sea that could then lead to something else, a federation, a confederation, uh, or a two-state solution based on secession. The book's message is not that two-state solution is not a pretty picture that might someday be achieved, but that it won't be achieved through negotiations and that to try to do so under the conditions of the one state reality entrenches apartheid and serves the interests of the most reactionary oppressive forces that exist both in Israel and among the Palestinians. Well, great. We've been speaking with Ayn Lustig of the University of Pennsylvania about his new book, Paradigm Lost. Ayn, a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Mark. Same to you. 